Well, thanks so much, Chris, um, for reading. We're coming to the end of our series in uh, Isaiah, chapter 55. Um, uh, my name's Chris Evans. If I haven't met you, I'm the assistant pastor here uh, at Redeemer, and it's my joy to um, preach this passage to us this morning. Um, Rooted, you guys are in with us. Um, normally, we have a couple of questions for you. Um, here's, here's a couple of questions. These are basically my two points, but I'll put them in question form. Um, what is so glorious about the invitation God gives his people. What is so glorious about the invitation God gives his people? And a second question, how does he want us to respond? How does he want us to respond? Brilliant. I'm going to pray for the Lord's help as uh, we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we have just read that your word goes out from your mouth, that it will not return to you empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, we pray that you would do exactly that this morning. And we can pray with confidence because that is what you say you will do right here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder um, what comes to mind when you think of second chances, second chances, maybe feelings of joy and gratitude, maybe feelings of frustration, feeling begrudged. Um, One of my favorite books in the Bible, so one of my, I don't think you probably should have a favorite book, it's all great. One of my favorite books is a little letter called Philemon that you find in the New Testament. It's just one page long, about 17 or 20 verses, and it's all about second chances. Um, Two main characters, a chap called Onesimus, he is a, a former worker, and he's run off from his boss, and he did his boss, a chap called Philemon, great wrong. He probably stole a lot of money or something like that. That's what we think. He's been gone a long time. But Onesimus, he meets Paul, he becomes a Christian, and Paul says, I should send you back home. So Paul writes this letter that we've got in the Bible. He writes this letter to Philemon, and he knows it's going to be hard for him to receive Onesimus back because of what he did. But he pleads with him. Philemon, show Onesimus a second chance. Why? Because Onesimus is now your brother in Christ. He realizes what he did was wrong. And he wants him to be reconciled. Paul even says, I'll cover the damages to sort of soften the blow. Give him a second chance. It's hard for Philemon though, isn't it? It's hard. But it's also hard for Onesimus. In those days, no email, no texts. You couldn't kind of get a feel for what it would be like uh, before he actually got there. And it's not just sent in a letter. He has to go with the letter itself with a guy called Tychicus. They go to Colossae, to Philemon's house. Imagine he turns up on the door. The last thing he's seen is run off. He doesn't know what his former master is going to do, and he hands him this letter, telling his master to give him a second chance. It's hard for him too, isn't it? I wonder who you most identify with out of those two. I wonder if, like Onesimus, we've ever needed being given a second chance. I guess that's true probably for most of us in the room. Or maybe like Philemon, you've been asked to give someone else a second chance. And that can be unbelievably hard as well, can't it? Especially if we've been deeply hurt or disappointed. And especially if it's 
people close to us it normally is, a parent or a child, a friend, or even a spouse. But what about second chances with God? In Isaiah, we've seen Israel have abandoned God again and again. Not only abandoned, they've replaced him. They've replaced him with other gods. And he has had every right to send them off to exile, which is where they are. But in this section, 40 to 55, which are coming to an end to, there are glimmers of hope all the way through. Hope of comfort, of salvation. And two weeks ago, uh, we saw how God was going to make things right with his people. Jesus, the suffering servant, he would die to deal with their problem of sin. And today, in Isaiah 55, we see the difference that makes. They get invited back. They get their second chance. In Isaiah 55, we see a glorious invitation which needs an urgent response. That's the two things we're going to look at. A glorious invitation in need of an urgent response. But God isn't just calling Israel to respond all those years ago. Now, these words are for us today. This invitation is one that Jesus gave to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 to drink living waters, which would mean she never thirsted again, living waters of eternal life. So don't switch off and think this is just for them. No, this is for all of us. So let's listen in to the glorious invitation. I wonder if you heard when we, when we read it, um, verses 1 to 5, four times in the first verse, so the word come, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. And without money and without cost. And we see it again down in verse 3. Give ear, come to me. Now, when you get an invitation, especially to like a wedding or a formal event, you normally kind of turn it over, don't you? And look at the details. Oh, what time is it? When is it? Where, where, oh, where have they got it? All of that sort of thing. How long is it going to be for? Well, as we look at this invitation, we're going to turn it over as well and see just how glorious it is. There's five things we're going to, we're going to spot as we go through. Firstly, who is it to? Well, it is a universal invitation. It is to, do you see verse one? Everyone who is thirsty. And we're probably not used to feeling hugely thirsty, uh, especially with kind of water on tap, but in a Middle Eastern climate, without taps, without filters, no water meant no life. Drought meant no food. You couldn't just sort of fly something in from a neighboring country or do a Sainsbury's delivery. In the Bible, again and again, we see the idea of water and drinking being connected, not just with physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life, life with God. It's an invitation Jesus gives. It's an invitation we get right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22 as well. This offer is for anyone who is thirsty for eternity, who longs for life after death. So isn't that an offer for everyone? Isn't that something we all long for? Isn't that something we all need? All you need for this invitation is to be thirsty. No qualifications or connections. It's not sort of an old school reunion, not a family only affair. It's not about gender, class, or wealth. It's not about being religious or irreligious. It's not even about Jew 
or Gentile at the end of the day. We see in verse 5, this is written to call God's people back, but the invitation is going to go to all of the nations. This is a universal invitation to all who are thirsty for life. And because all humanity is tainted by sin and facing death, it's an invitation for all. And that means God isn't just speaking to them, he's speaking to us. But did you also spot, it's also an invitation in verse 1 for those who have no money. This invitation is free. It's a free invitation. But there's a paradox here. Did you spot? What are they invited to do? Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How do those two things go together? You don't normally buy without money. It's not normally the kind of done deal, is it? You don't walk into Pret-a-Manger and grab a sandwich and and a coffee and say, thanks very much, I'm walking out. No, buying necessarily involves payment and cost. So how do you buy something for nothing? Well, I guess the answer is probably one that a child in a sweet shop could come up with, but it is one of deep theological significance. Someone else has to pay. Here, you can get your wine and milk, but without any price. It's as if you arrive and it's spread out, all laid before you like a rich banquet. I remember um, playing carols on a cruise ship once, and part of the gig was we got to have uh, lunch there. And if you've ever been on a cruise ship, the, the food courts are incredible. The spread went on what felt like for miles, and 18-year-old me was just shoving onto my plate as much steak, pizza, onion bargies, chips, battered fish, the most random combination, because you just wanted to have it all. It was free to me, but it was paid for by someone. And this invitation is a call to have eternal life. It's a call, it's a universal invitation to all who are thirsty, and it's a free invitation, because we see here it's been paid for already without money, without cost, at least to them. But just because it's free doesn't mean that it's cheap. Carry on with me for a minute to look at these food descriptions. Um, This isn't what we might expect from a a kind of soup kitchen or a basics bank. There's no ideas of Oliver Twist and gruel kind of running through our minds. No, it's sumptuous. This is a satisfying invitation as well. It's universal, it's free, and it's satisfying. Look, verse 1, it's not just water, but you get milk and wine. Verse 2, you eat what is good. Verse 2, we will delight in the richest of fare. It's even better than going into the Winchester Bakery, being able to pick up everything you want. More like the ivy or the Ritz. But what's on offer isn't a meal for our bodies at all. It is a feast for our souls. It is the Lord and his word. We spotted that word come is repeated again and again, but there's another word that's repeated. Have a look, the word listen. Verse two, listen to me. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. And again, give ear, come to me, listen that you may live. As the body is given life and nourished by good, hearty, satisfying food, so the soul is nourished and giving life by hearing the words of the Lord. We will not be left feeling empty or shortchanged, but fully satisfied. 
because this is the most rich and life-giving meal of all. But how can it be satisfying? It has to not just be really, really good, but, but not run out. And we see that too. The invitation, it's everlasting. Verse 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. This life that we are invited to, this glorious invitation is one that will never end. It's not to a kind of trial period of getting back together. It's an everlasting life from now to eternity, sealed by a promise and a covenant. But a covenant, in some ways, is simply an agreement, a very serious agreement between two parties. But you can get covenants on all sorts of things, like buildings. But what's precious about this, it's a covenant, did you see, of faithful love from a faithful God. It's part of that same promise that was made to King David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. And that through that descendant, the world would know God's loving rule and blessing, just what we're going to celebrate at Christmas. So as well as being an everlasting invitation, it is an ever-loving invitation as well. It's so personal. Who do we come to? He says, verse 3, come to me. It's not a covenant with a, a meal or a thing but with the Lord himself. God himself makes the covenant and his steadfast love is what we enjoy. It's not an invitation to a sort of lifetime membership of a club, but loving relationship with the Lord our God. The key thing about everlasting life is not just taking away the fear of death, but enjoying the Lord himself forever. Sophie and I um, got married recently, many of you will know, and uh, one of the blessings that, that, that I receive as part of that is that she has a, a, I think, a lifelong National Trust membership. Now, that means, uh, and it get, you get a plus one with it, so that means whenever we go anywhere, we've got somewhere to park, and I can get in for free. It's a great benefit. We've used it a few times, but I'm looking forward to using it many more times. But I didn't marry her to get her lifetime National Trust membership to enjoy uh, a wealth of interesting historical buildings. I married her because I love her. She is the prize in marriage, not, not the stuff that comes with her. And it's the same with us in and the Lord, isn't it, here? It's an ever-loving invitation, an everlasting invitation What a glorious invitation the Lord has laid out before his people. It's universal, so he says, come as you are, thirsty and needy. It's free, the cost has been paid. It's satisfying, it's the offer of life in all its fullness from the life-giving word of God. And it's satisfying because it's everlasting, this isn't a trial period, and because it's ever-loving. We'll never be alone, always in loving relationship with the Lord himself. What an invitation. Now, if you read this and you were trying to work out, okay, out of these two parties, who is the offended one? Who is looking for the second chance from whom? Who's trying harder? You might think that God was the one in the wrong. He's the one going into all the effort to put on this lavish invitation. He offers things left, right, and center. But God isn't trying to bribe Israel for a second chance here. He's lavishing one upon them. And it's not just a second chance, is it? Let's be honest. It's, it's a hundredth, a thousandth chance. 
And it's easy to forget just how drastic this is. Maybe you need to go back and listen to our sermon series on Isaiah 1 to 12 and then 13 to 40 just to see how serious their sin was. We're 55 chapters in. They've walked away from God and abandoned him after countless chances of being able to come back. They've been uprooted and exiled for their sin. It's so serious that it's described again and again as spiritual adultery. They've worshipped things that they've made themselves, which can't satisfy, which can't save them. No, God is the injured party here. And yet he is the one who sends them this glorious invitation. I wonder if you can think of somebody, maybe you think, I didn't treat them as well as I could have done. Imagine them treating you the way God treats Israel. Maybe that gets to the sense of it. But in reality, the comparison is always going to fall down. Because sin against a holy God is of cosmic seriousness. But it merits nothing. Nothing but death and judgment. So how can this invitation even be possible from God? His justice tells them that they don't deserve a second chance, let alone a thousandth one. Well, this glorious invitation of Isaiah 55 It only makes sense because we've had the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We read these verses uh, a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They can accept invitation to this feast of eternal life because the suffering servant's death has made it possible for sin to be forgiven. They can come without money, without cost, because he paid it all. Because he died, they live. God offers them a second chance. And God offers us a second chance too, a hundredth chance, a thousandth chance, because Jesus has paid it all. His is the price, and ours is the freeness. And so what are we to do? We're to come, to come and be satisfied. We're to listen and to live. But did you spot the question in the middle, verse 2? Isaiah knows that in spite of this invitation being so glorious, we won't always find it easy to respond. Verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? I think he's picking up two things that we find difficult. Firstly, we struggle with it being free. We're used to a world where we pay our own way. But salvation here, which cannot be bought and must be paid for by another? I wonder how good are you at just receiving things without feeling that you need to to pay back in, in some way, even a small way. Someone buys you a drink, oh, I must get the next one. Or you kind of clock in your mind next time you go out for coffee, oh, it's it's my turn. That's not an awful thing to do, by the way, but just, just notice it in yourself. If we can't let someone buy us a meal without it feeling like something we don't have to return the favor for, 
then we will struggle with the idea of grace, that salvation is a gift of God. And we need to be so careful because the moment we want to put even the smallest bit of our effort or our goodness into earning something of this glorious invitation, we're effectively saying that what God has done already, what he's paid already, that wasn't quite enough. We're making a mockery of what the suffering servant did. We find it hard to get things for free. Sometimes it just feels too good to be true. But it is free. It is true. But secondly, we're also satisfied too easily. It says here, what's the point in spending money on something that isn't bread? Something, something that you spend money on something that won't really nourish you or, or feed you. And the problem is, there are all sorts of things, aren't there, that are not God, that we think will satisfy us. We hear all sorts of invitations every day to taste, to touch, to look, to invest, and they promise things that feel very tangible indeed. And if we're honest, there's lots of things that we think, well, if I had that, I would be pretty satisfied. I don't know what it might be for you. You'll have to think about that for yourself. Maybe more money, maybe a relationship or a new relationship, a better job, a nicer house. These things cry out to us, an invitation of a different life. And it might be a very nice life, but it won't satisfy like the one God offers. And Israel will have to learn that the hard way. The question is, will we? Will we learn from their example? C.S. Lewis put it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Look at this glorious invitation. Glorious invitation and come and be satisfied. Listen and live. But how do we come? How do we RSVP on this invitation? Well, we see in the second half of 6 to 13 that it needs an urgent response. An urgent response. Well, firstly, we are to come with humility. Verse 6, do you see? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. We don't tick a box uh, or post a return slip or fill in a Google form. We actually go to him. And that doesn't mean physically having to go somewhere, but speaking to him, telling him, praying, saying yes. And he will hear. But what does seeking look like? It looks like coming with great humility, knowing that this is the second chance of a lifetime. Verse 7 shows us what seeking looks like. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. So our invitation tells us, come as you are, thirsty and needy. But here we see, come as you are, but don't stay as you are once you've come. It looks like saying sorry, confessing and repenting of our sin and looking to live for him now. And those two things, forsaking their ways and turning to the Lord, are kind of part of the same movement. When you 
move one way, you, you turn your back on something and you turn towards something else. We're, we're negatively turning away from sin, forsaking their ways and their thoughts. Our, our way, probably our outward actions, our thoughts, the things of the mind and the heart. And that fits with Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? The murderer should stop murdering, yes, but also stop the hating that leads to murder. The adulterer should stop sleeping around, yes, but also forsake their desires for somebody else. Turn from sin, but turn to the Lord. And it's hard, isn't it, sometimes to turn from something we find attractive to something that we might find less attractive. But this glorious invitation should show us what we're taught, turning to is more infinitely beautiful than anything else. The Puritan writer Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection. Um, this is how it might work with, with children. Uh, you tell a child that, that sweets aren't very good for them, but it's, that's not enough to tell, for them to stop eating sweets. It's not easy to just stop eating sweets. They taste really good. In order to say no, you have to have something better to say yes to. And so you offer them some carrots. Well, that's not really a big enough yes, is it? Carrots, no, but maybe strawberries? I don't know, that might work. You get the idea. The greater desire expels the lesser one. And our longing here is that the greater desire for the Lord, as we turn to him, makes our ways and our thoughts, puts them in perspective. We see them as Nothing as worthless. We are to come with humility before him, knowing that we need him a lot and that he is good. But we're also to come with confidence because coming with humility is hard, isn't it? It's, it's hard going out on a limb with somebody when you don't know quite how they're going to respond. Um, maybe you've had to say sorry to somebody and you felt concerned as to how they were going to take the apology. Would they forgive you or not? Maybe you've had to tell somebody a really hard truth because you love them, but you don't know how they're going to take it. Maybe you've had to, you want to ask somebody out and you're unsure what their response is going to be. In all these situations, wouldn't it be so much easier if we just knew what their answer was? We could go into it confident. And amazingly, the Lord tells us that if we come with humility, if we forsake our sin and turn to him, before we even ask it, he tells us that we can come to him and know forgiveness. He doesn't say forsake your ways and your thoughts just so he can keep us waiting. He doesn't do it to make us feel bad or wallow in our shame or to manipulate us into doing more for him or giving more to him. No, the end of verse seven, turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God and he will freely pardon. We turn to him so that he can express the depth of his heart towards us in abundant mercy and compassion. As hard as it is to come humbly, as we see the mess of our hearts, the Lord wants to make it easier by saying you can come confidently. And in verse 8 to 13, we get three reasons why. Because that is the great mystery of the gospel, isn't it? 
how a holy God could show such mercy and pardon to those in verse 7 who are called wicked and unrighteous. Three reasons he gives us to be confident. Firstly, verse 8 and 9, that his ways are not our ways. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah knows if we were in God's place, we would not show compassion or pardon so freely. Or if we did, it would be hugely limited. I'll have mercy on you until you cross my line. Or I'll let you back in, but begrudgingly. For the next month or so, you've got to be really careful around me. And because that's how we would probably treat someone turning back to us, we project that onto God, don't we? So easy. We minimize his compassion. We make, us, we make him like us, plus a little bit more patience, a little bit more willingness. But Isaiah says here, our view of God needs to change. Dane Ortland has written a, a wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, and he captures this in, in so many ways. Um, let me read you this, this quote about how our view needs to change. He says, what would we say to a seven-year-old who, upon being given a birthday gift by his father, immediately scrambled to the piggy bank to try and pay his dad back? How painful to a father's heart, he says. That child needs to change his view of who his father is and what his father delights to do. In the same way, our view of God needs to change. Our view of what he delights to do. And not just change a little, but a lot. He tells us how different we are. Not just a little to God, but a lot. Look, verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. The difference between our compassion and mercy and his is the difference between heaven and earth. So we can come confidently. But the second reason for confidence is that his word never fails its purpose. Verse 10 and 11, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the flower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty to me, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Rain and snow and the word of God. Two things that come from heaven to earth to find their goal and bring life and flourishing. I probably said before, um, my, my cousin lives on a farm and during the kind of long kind of weeks of sun that we had this year, everything was brown and yellow and dry for so long. But he was telling me it was remarkable the difference. After one day of rain, everything started to turn green again. The color began to change overnight. The rain could find all that it needed to achieve its purpose. And the idea here is that if rain can find seeds and cause them to grow and bear fruit, then how much more can the word of God find the hearts of men and women and do its work in bringing new life? If you've heard the invitation, if you want to respond by forsaking your ways and thoughts and turning to the Lord, we can be confident because God's word will bring about the new life he has promised if we trust in him. And the last reason to come confidently is that he will reverse the curse. Verse 12 and 13, look at what he promises everyone who comes. You will go out in joy 
and be led forth in peace. And this joy and peace isn't just a sort of happy season or peace after an argument. It is like the peace and joy that come after a war. It is cosmic in scale. This is the peace that the entire universe has been longing and groaning for since the fall, since the entrance of sin and suffering into the world. And that's why all creation joins in afterwards. In verse 12, it's, it's like a scene from Sound of Music, isn't it? The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Because when humanity is restored to relationship with God, the whole order of creation is restored as well. The curse is reversed. Verse 13, instead of a thorn bush, a plant which represents the fall and frustration will grow the juniper, something fruitful. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This is what we celebrate. This is the confidence we have. We, we sing about it in Joy to the World at, at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. We can come confidently because God's redemption plan is a a cosmic work that we are being woven into. So will we come? Will we come humbly? Will we seek him and be pardoned? And if you already have, can we be more confident of that pardon because of what we've seen? But if you haven't come to him, if you haven't sought pardon, Did you spot there's one more thing in this invitation RSVP? Verse 6 tells us that it does have a time limit. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. It's a glorious invitation, but it's a response that comes with urgency. We come with humility, yes, and confidence, but we must come while he may be found. This is not an invitation that you can leave to the last minute. It's not something to leave sitting in your inbox or in a pile of unread post. I remember talking to friends on my corridor at university, and they felt like Christianity was something they wanted to leave until they were a bit older, until they'd kind of got their fun out of the way. But if you've heard this invitation, Isaiah is telling us that the best fun is ahead. Look at the invitation. But more importantly, that it isn't something that you can put off. There is no time for delay. Come while he may be found. Isaiah said this because God wants everyone to hear the invitation. And the Lord Jesus, he came to give us that invitation again and to give us even more confidence of its goodness and beauty. He died and rose again to make this salvation possible. And that curse, it will be reversed when Jesus returns. But when he does, our answer towards him can no longer be changed. That eternal invitation to life with him, when he comes, it will have already begun and the doors will be shut and there will be no late admissions. We don't know when that will be but we know that he can be found now. And if we come humbly, then we can come 
confidently, trusting in the work of Jesus, that we will be gloriously welcomed to this glorious invitation of eternal life. So can I say, if that is you this morning, please don't delay. We have a glorious invitation to come to be satisfied, but it needs an urgent response. So seek him and be pardoned. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your lavish goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that this passage shows us the depths of your compassion and mercy towards those who have walked away from you time and time again. Lord, we thank you for this glorious invitation that is bought for us by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, once again, we want to come before you and respond humbly, longing that we would put to death our sin, confessing that we have not walked according to your ways. But we want not only to turn from them, but to turn to you, to see your goodness and your beauty afresh and to follow you and to do so confidently, knowing that you are so much more merciful and generous and kind than we can ever imagine. And that that beautiful invitation we have is secure in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we praise you for him and we praise you that in him we have not just a second chance, but a hundredth, a thousandth chance. Lord, please, would we not delay to turn to you before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.